And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now, 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 now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast. We come together to delve into the arts, the culture and the people of East London. But as we've discovered over the years, although we cover things that stem from this particular area, they go way beyond the postcode. So wherever you're listening, great to have you with us uh, for our first show of 2015. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Anna Xavier. Yes, hello. So for today's show, we have a bit of a theme going on. Interesting ways spaces are used in East London. So I have been going back to my Portuguese roots to find about two Portuguese businesses running right here in East London. Um, we'll also be hearing about how the people of Bethnal Green are coming together to create a memorial in the space where, tragically, 173 people died during the Second World War. Yes, and hello from me as well. Um can we still say Happy New Year? Is that, is that okay? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of... Until, until the end of the month, I think. Is very, knew, safe just about, just about. So um, I've been exploring some of the many workspaces of East London. More of that later. And music-wise, there's so many gigs happening around uh, in February. I just couldn't... I, I, it was nearly impossible to choose. But I have. And you'll be hearing tunes by Stealing Sheep, Public Service Broadcasting, and Monsieur Laurent Garnier. Really looking forward to that. But first up, I roamed the streets of East London to talk to the people responsible for showcasing contemporary Portuguese culture to the masses. And they're part of the new wave of immigrants. They are using spaces to unite the roots of Portuguese products and food to the latest cultural movements in music, design and illustration. I'm Dina and I'm one of the owners of a Portuguese love fair, a shop in uh, Columbia Road. Hello, I'm Olga. I am co-owner of a Portuguese love affair. When we moved to London, the idea was to gather some money to go back to Portugal and open a new business. But London happened and we felt in love. We decided to stay and this idea of bringing Portugal to London instead of going back to Portugal started forming and hence Portuguese love affairs started to develop and now it's a reality. Why did you choose the products that you have in the shop? First we start the products that are, uh, you know, that are part of, uh, I think, the Portuguese culture, uh, such as the ceramics or some of the soaps. Um, and so on. And then uh, we kind of have to do a research and, uh, you know, we like to keep an eye on what's happening. But we like to have in the shop the products that we really love. Could refer 
three favorites or four, it's difficult to choose just one, you know. I always say this to customers when they ask me, why do we have these products? We only choose things we love because if something goes wrong, at least we have a bunch of things we love. <laughs> you know, it's something um, that's paramount for us. We really need to like the product. Although I obviously don't shave. Yeah. <laughs> but I do love the Barbiria, Antiga Barbiria do Bairro grooming products. But I do use one of the soaps and I really love the scent and the quality of the soap. And I love that everything is carefully wrapped by hand. It's all very crafty. That's one I like. I also am utterly in love with some of the sardines. Quite often they are my lunch. So any of the brands we have are amazing. The Minerva, the Tricana. I'm not referring to the Burdalu ceramics because I've been referring them always. <laughs> well, I'm a bit cuckoo about them, so I'd rather not go there because I wouldn't stop talking. And I can see there's um, uh, some products made of cork. Yeah, yeah. That's Tina's, uh, that's Tina's favorite. Ask her. Favorite. Uh, it's, uh, it's a piece of design. It's a fruit bowl, but it has two different shapes. So you can... Can you... She loves doing this uh, demonstration. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry that you won't be able to see it. But she's really good at it. But basically, they have some magnets on the edges, so you can uh, have it like this on your table or, or like that. And, and I love it because wow. it's so... Now it's the moment everyone says, wow! <laughs> <laughs> I really love it. One, because it's cork, and I think, again, cork is part of being Portuguese. I mean, we're the, the biggest exporters of cork in, in the world, and we're such a tiny country. The fact that cork has stopped, well, or not so often used anymore, unfortunately, for the top uh, bottles, for the wine and so on, uh, there's lots of things happening with cork in Portugal, and so far this is really one of my favorites. There is a funny story. As I said, Dina is really good doing the demonstration. <laughs> it looks like a magic trick when she, when she changes the shape of the, the fruit ball from little to big. Once we had uh, this um, little boy around uh, 10 years of age visiting with his mom and he was looking at it. And Dina, and because he's a kid, she did it like a magic trick. It changed the shape really quick and the kid was absolutely astounded. He was very excited about it. And apparently his mom told him, we learned after, told him that he could choose one product that day to, to take home. And obviously she wasn't expecting this, but he shows this fruit ball, not because it was a fruit ball, but because of all the excitement of the changing of the shape. Obviously, this is a design piece and it's not very cheap. So she very calmly had to explain that she couldn't buy this one. He had to choose any other. And he felt really, really upset with his mom because she had promised. Promise. Yeah, she had promised that he could choose anything. And now she was saying that he couldn't have the thing he wanted, which was the fruit ball. It was rather funny. We tried to intervene and uh, keep it calm, but, but we felt a bit guilty because he really wanted it. And obviously she's not up to buy it. <laughs> We had the business in Lisbon before we came to London and it was much more related to live music and workshops and stuff. And we kind of kept that bug. So we, we have the shop, but we like to talk, we like 
to meet new people and so on. So we, we start to organize some events here in the shop. We've done a few poetry sessions. I think we eventually going to start at the beginning of the year again. Portuguese poetry, and we actually had uh, one of the best Scottish poets also one day here to read his poetry. Even when we do the, the, the poetry in Portuguese, there's always someone to translate it into English, so there's a way to, you know, listen to our language, but then also know what, what actually we're talking about. We do every month's wine tasting. You know, either we pick a type of wine or we pick a region in Portugal, and then we do five wines paired with five nibbles, and that's it. I mean, and we have uh, one of the guys that uh, supply the wine to, you know, explain a little bit about the wine, the regions, and so on. The, the mm -hmm. space is very tiny, but we try to show a bit of our culture, not only in the products we select, but also in little activities that, that represent us as well. Hello, I'm Rita, I'm from the Portuguese Conspiracy. I'm uh, José, and from the Conspiracy as well. That started in uh, February 2013. It kind of evolved uh, through many other ramifications of that effort to promote uh, Portuguese contemporary culture. And um, basically it was the idea that um, food, wine, and uh, our very specific uh, manifestations of music, art, film, could all you know function together as a way of uh, you know showcasing the diversity and uh, excellence and, and the great things that we have in Portugal. Uh, all the events uh, around Bethnal Green, uh, Dalston, and after a year of uh, doing the supper clubs, we set up the conspiracy headquarters very near Dalston Kingsland and uh, in King Henry's Walk. And so now, now, along with the events that we do, film festivals, concerts, we have uh, a great place for people to come every night on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. One of our best sellers is the Bacalao Abrash. Yeah. And it's very funny for us that we start cooking bacalao at 10 in the morning and people have it like a breakfast, <laughs> so it's uh, all day long. And another bestseller is the bola, that is a savory cake. It's very funny listening people asking for bola, and the beginning was very unusual, and everyone was asking what's that, then they try, and I have regular customers for bola, and they come just ask for bola. And you can also have great vinho verde with your bacalao. If, if you don't like vinho verde, you can have wines from Douro, which are beautiful, which is the place where the port wines come from as well. We have um, some uh, jams that are packed in um, yes. tubes, come from organically farmed villages, mainly all of them from small producers and artisans and uh, also the petiscs, right? Equivalent to tapas. Mm -hmm. Small plates to share with most traditional petiscos that you can find in Portugal, like octopus, cuttlefish, rojões. We are amazed with the amount of people that are eating later these days. Our suppliers said that we are London's biggest consumer of alheiras right now, so it's becoming epic for alheira. Um, alheira is uh, basically... 
a disguise uh, that it was created from the Jewish settlers in, in Portugal that they would need to disguise what they eat because if they weren't eating pork, that meant they, they were Jews. So in, at the time, it wasn't actually a very good thing. So Alleria came about as a way of disguising what they were eating, made of uh, boar, rabbit, partridge, stuff like that. I think one of the interesting things about Portuguese culture is that uh, we've been able to do loads of different things with raw materials. For example, bacalhau is one of those things. There's a tradition that says there's a thousand recipes for bacalhau, and it's true that there are. We've always got you know loads of things happening, um, but most of it we try to mix everything together and create very special occasions where things happen. The easiest bit was starting with food, and quickly that you know iterated to uh, bringing filmmakers and movies and um, films and uh, illustrators. Basically, the criteria was getting stuff that we like shown and visible to East London. It was more of a, an exercise of learning how to do that and how to make those events you know, sustainable for us. And uh, basically, it's, it's just more of a challenge of, of getting our act together to be able to juggle all those different things that we do tried to also function as a platform for emerging artists in Portugal so that their work can be showcased here in, in London, which we think it's, it's, it's a great place to show because there's people from everywhere here. So, are you sold to the Portuguese culture? <laughs> That's a question I usually I'm ask. actually intrigued because um, I didn't know there were so many facets to it. Obviously, I know it's always been a very rich culture, but um, I find it quite interesting that there are a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. And the, they're really making an effort to not only embrace the traditions, but then also break stereotypes. Yeah, so that's yeah, really definitely. interesting. It's kind of the traditional meets the modern, and I think that's a, a, a really um, interesting outlook. And I want to see this fruit bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, there, there were a, a few things that I purposely left in, so then you can be kind of curious Ooh, enigmatic. About, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so then you actually need to go there. I wouldn't be giving it to you like straight away. You know, that's that's what I need to do. Have, have you been to any of the events? Yes, the- I have. So is it mainly Portuguese people or is it like a mix? It was a mix, actually. I've been to one of the events at the Portuguese uh, Love Affair at the shop and it's quite a tiny shop and they had the launch of these uh, grooming products. So then they had actually a live... (laughs) Not really. They wanted to get... uh, Or women. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They wanted to get men to shave off their beards. Uh, and it was quite funny because there were loads of foreigners just what's going on in here this man is is getting shaved I don't understand but then but then they kept waiting and and they they got a bit into the products and wanted to know a bit more about what what they were made of and the tradition and all that and it was quite interesting and for the uh, the Portuguese conspiracy I actually went to one of their um, music uh, events which gather two of the most contemporary guitarists in Portugal, Filho da Mãe, which translates to son of a mother, and uh, Norberto Lobo. And it was really interesting to see there were 
of course you'd see Portuguese people and you could recognize them but there were loads of foreigners I, I believe they may be friends of Portuguese people but also other people that are already interested in culture which is really good to know <laughs> we'll be checking that out so um bit of music yeah definitely so Anna how do you say gold in Portuguese well so if you are from the north where I'm from you would pronounce the U quite strongly so you'd say ouro but if you'd be from the south you'd pronounce it ouro okay I'm gonna go with the south one because it's easier <laughs> so this is stealing sheep with ouro
That was Gold or Oro by Stealing Sheep. And they'll be playing at quite an intimate gig at Chats Palace uh, in Clapton on Tuesday the 10th of February. Thanks, Pearl. So this year marks the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And in this interview, I spoke to two people affected by one very tragic wartime accident. They told me how they are now using the space at Bethnal Green Tube Station to commemorate those who died. When descending the stairs at Bethnal Green Tube Station in East London, there's a small plaque on the wall commemorating 173 men, women and children who lost their lives on the 3rd of March 1943. Local architect Harry Paticus had gone down those same stairs many times, seen the plaque and decided to look into what happened. He didn't realise then that he was about to start an extraordinary journey into the past, to the worst civilian disaster of World War II, but one that didn't involve guns or bombs. I did a bit of research and discovered that a really horrific, tragic disaster happened on the stairs. I thought perhaps more should be done, so I decided to draw up a proposal for a memorial that would be more evident and more prominent in the city so that people could understand um, what actually happened. The architect called a meeting to explain what was happening with his design along with relatives of lots of people that died in the Bethel Green Tube disaster and survivors. It was a meeting that we couldn't believe was standing room only. It was absolutely packed and at the end of it people were in tears and everybody agreed unanimously that what we really did want was a memorial to this terrible disaster which turned out to be the worst civilian disaster of World War II. That's Sandra Scotting whose grandmother and cousin died on that night in 1943 through a series of tragic events that would devastate the whole community. When the siren went off at 8.17 in the evening, on the 3rd of March, it was pitch dark, there was a blackout. People today don't know what real inky dark is like, but it really was, you had to feel your way along the, the road probably holding onto the railings as you walk towards the entrance there's three entrances to the station today but there was only one narrow entrance in those days you went straight through the door and then you had to go down 19 steps at this particular time when there was already 2,000 people down below but at 8.27 three buses arrived at the same time probably not unusual today but fairly unusual then but because the cinemas and the pubs had all closed because the siren had gone off the buses were loaded with people and their drivers had um, instructions that they would take them to the nearest shelter and that was it. So everybody was turfed off the buses. You had the normal people who were standing around outside as they always did at night and everyone else trying to converge towards it. And at that precise moment, this deafening sound went up, which nobody knew, nobody recognised, nobody ever heard it before. It turned out to be an anti-aircraft rocket battery. Uh, firing in the park nearby, in Victoria Park. Nobody knew it was there. 
they assumed it was a new kind of bomb. And at the same time, at the bottom of the stairs, which were wet because it had been raining all day, a woman slipped and fell um, with a child in her arms. She fell on the bottom step and pulled another man on top of her and everybody coming down the stairs fell on top. According to the official records, within 30 seconds, approximately 300 people were trapped at the bottom of the stairs between the floor and the ceiling on this um, landing. It took just over three hours to pull the last of the people out from above. Um, people also tried from below and tried from above. You had the police, the ambulance, everybody that they could possibly um, press to help. Sandra told me that many of the children were unrecognisable because of the severity of their injuries. But this horrific disaster wasn't headline news, as you might expect. Those that did survive were told to keep it all secret. They were told not to say anything to anybody, um, partly because they didn't want the enemy to gain propaganda and partly because they wanted to keep up morale and they didn't want people to stop using shelters and think they suddenly weren't safe. The reasons why Sandra has campaigned so hard for this memorial is to tell the story that marked so many families, including her own. My grandmother and my two-year-old cousin died and my mother and my aunt were survivors. Um, my mother uh, wouldn't go to shelter at all um, during the war. She had the feeling that what will be will be, so as far as she was concerned, that was it. Her sister and her mother would go, but she wouldn't. And my grandmother and my aunt said to my mother, look, if anything happened to little Barry, we'd never forgive ourselves, so if the siren goes off, we really must go to the shelter. So my mother very reluctantly agreed... So when the siren did go off, they all gathered their things and my grandmother and my aunt carried on towards the shelter. My mother was that bit further behind because she was carrying Barry because he was almost three, he was quite a big child. So she was that bit slower. My grandmother and aunt had obviously got down the stairs and my mother got to this entrance and all these people were around from the bus and she didn't like crowds, she didn't like, you know, close spaces. So she actually turned round and shouted to her mother, I'm going home, Mum. as she did so everybody was coming through because of this deafening sound they all suddenly started going through the door and they actually threw her down on the on the stairs on her back she didn't realize she was landing on other people at midnight three hours after that first woman had slipped on the stairs of the station all 300 people had been pulled out of the shelter and many were lying on the street some injured and shocked but for many others it was already too late they discovered 173 people had died of whom 62 were children, and that was the terrible tragedy. What they used to do was they took the bodies out and laid them on the pavement, almost midnight, freezing cold in March, and wet from the rain. So more people probably died, you know, of hypothermia, and they used to walk along the row of bodies with a, um, with a little glass to see if there was any you know, any mist on there so that they knew someone was alive and then they'd hike them off to hospital. Otherwise, they just stayed there and then they went to the mortuary. And my mother apparently remembers getting up, she said, and she did eventually go to the mortuary. Barry was there, but she said it was as though he was asleep. He, there wasn't a mark on him, and that, I suppose, we have to be grateful for, considering some of the other children. 
um, but she couldn't find her mother. And the lady that was in charge said, have another look, love. And thinking about it now, they were probably all laid out, as you would see on the television in a disaster with a blanket over them, and you probably just pulled the blanket back and she wouldn't have recognised her hair because my grandmother had quite dark hair. But apparently her hair had turned white with a shock. She lost her mother, she lost her nephew that she was looking after. And you have to live with that. I mean, I don't know how the hell she lived with that, but she said that every night she used to lay down and she could hear the screams and the cries when she went to sleep. Like Sandra's mum, many other families still hear those screams today, which is what drives her campaign for the memorial forward. This may have happened 70 years ago, but it's just as relevant in wars all around the world. It's the women and children that die. This year will mark the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, and so Harry, Sandra and the team behind the Stairway to Heaven Memorial are desperate to raise the rest of the money and complete the structure. For the remaining survivors of the Bethnal Green Tube disaster, time is not on their side either. As most of them are in their 80s and 90s, they now want to see what happened commemorated so that they can find closure and finally feel at peace try to get each family group to represent their story in, in, in their words. So as you move around the memorial, you should get a, a feeling by reading each of these different plaques, build up a picture of what, what happened that, that awful night. And if you're interested in the history surrounding the Second World War, the Bishopsgate Institute in Liverpool Street is putting on a series of talks and workshops about dogs in London during wartime. So you can find out times and dates at bishopsgateinstitute.org.uk. Brilliant, thanks. And there's a lot of um, memorials going on about the Holocaust at the moment, so Mm. it's kind of a lot of Second World War memories coming back. Um, so let's have a little bit more music. This is very radiophonic. Um, so uh, to showcase the release of their new album, The Race for Space, um, this group called Public Service Broadcasting, I mean, they even sound like, you know, a radio <laughs> <laughs> broadcast, but they use a lot of radio and TV samples. Um, and they'll be at Rough Trade East on Tuesday, the 24th of February. Here's a little taste of the sounds of this new release. Um, This is public service broadcast, broadcasting, sorry, with Gagarin. This is Moscow. This is Moscow on the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich.
Jeff Gotti. Was it hazardous? Yes, it was. The first strides into the unknown were about to be made. The hero who blazed the trail for the stars. That was public service broadcasting, and they actually gave me the pronunciation, which is Gagarin. So um, that was them, and I recommend having a look at the video for that. It's it's quite fun. Um, So I've been exploring different workspaces around East London recently, and I'm intrigued by the notion that many are striving to provide much more than plug sockets, desks, and coffee facilities. Many of these spaces are becoming social hubs. So last month I met up with Leo Lawson, the founder and director of Eat Work Art. And they're the company that run the workspaces uh, which are much more than just workspaces, Nettle House and Hackney Down Studios. I see it very, very clearly. And there's a huge amount of flexibility within that vision and a huge amount of listening to what happens and kind of going with the flow and allowing people to inform it and develop it. But the kind of fundamental framework and the fundamental principle of the vibe that I'm looking for is very, very clear. And in terms of the space, which bits will fit with which bits and how the jigsaw goes together, that's something I'm very clear on. 
I'm Leo Lawson O'Neill and I run Eat Work Art. We take over derelict sites and turn them into communities for creative businesses. Originally, I was I was running a small business. Uh, I was a life coach in Shoreditch um, and had a studio down there. And the landlord of the building didn't really do much with the building. It was quite run down, broken windows, lovely building. You know, had huge potential, but you know, wasn't not really any interest in making it the best it could be. There were a couple of studios that were empty. And I asked him if he, he wanted to sublet them, so he let them to me and I'd do them up and sublet them. When he then had tenants who defaulted because of the recession, he came to me and said, do you want to take these studios as well? So I then ended up with you know, about 12 studios that I was running down there. I didn't have the whole building, I just had the 12 studios, and so I couldn't really do anything really interesting. Um, and I saw a big derelict building, it was Nettle House at the time, and thought that had huge potential and it was on the market at the time nobody else was particularly interested in it but basically everyone thought it was just too much work because it was it had been squatted and was completely gutted of everything valuable you know there was no no central heating no no electrics you know things were broken no toilets every toilet cubicle was smashed up i i agreed a lease on the building at the time, n- nobody else was really interested. It was easy to agree in principle, very difficult to negotiate the terms because of the state of the building. And at the time, I didn't have a huge amount of investment capital, so I had to come up with this deal with the landlord where he paid for some of the works. But we got there. It took six months or something of negotiation, but we got there. I kind of worked out how to develop it and got a build team together and gradually turned it into what it is today. When you saw the building, did you already have an idea of what you wanted to do in it or did that sort of happen organically with the people that approached you to rent out space? It's an interesting question because, you know, at some level my my, my reaction is, is that it happened organically. But on the other hand, I now realise that I actually have quite a clear vision of what I'm trying to do with the space. So, for example, you went into Nestle House, you saw this big, empty, gutted building. Mm. When you saw the space, what what was that vision? What were, what were you thinking? To give a sense of like how clear the vision was in me. You know, I, I'd go into Nettle House and I was beside myself with excitement of the possibilities of the space and, and, and what I could see. It was almost like when I went in, it was already there you know in my mind it was as great as it is today but you know most of my conversations with experts shed light on the fact that it was very much my vision because they sort of look at me like I was mad even the person on the side of the landlord just said to me you know what are you going to do about how ugly the building is you know I just said that's not a problem I don't think the building's ugly I think it's actually got a lot of character you know I could just see what it would be like if all the people that I wanted in there were in there and all the all the nastiness was stripped out and the natural character of the building allowed to express itself and it just felt very real for me. It's interesting because you've actually called your company Eat Work Art. Yeah. So you're already, in your mind, it's already that eating and the art goes with the work and you're already thinking about this kind of space where people are working but they're also doing other things and... Uh, socialising and was that a vision that you had right from the beginning? Absolutely. 
I mean, fundamental, the most exciting things which you know, a lot of people didn't get was the idea of putting a cafe on the second floor of the building, you know, with a terrace. That was really fundamental to the idea, you know, to, to have this space in the middle that was like a really wonderful space with views. And so at the time, there weren't places where you could go out on a terrace and, you know, like overlook London and that kind of thing. And I thought that was really exciting. But interestingly, the Eat Work Art thing is we didn't start as Eat Work Art. We started as creative network partners. And that was sort of like it did what it said on the tin. And in the early days, it needed to be a bit more formal because we were trying to show that we were organised and not nightmare squatters. Interestingly, the Eat Work Art came out of it. It was the most extraordinary, serendipitous name because... If you read Creative Network Partners, the eat is in the create, the, the work is in the network, and the art is in the partners. We were puzzling about how to shorten our name, and people were saying, you know, we're calling us CNP. And, and, and I was like, I hate this, you know, but we have to shorten it because telling people our email address is horrible. And then I saw this Eat Work Art, and it fits, as you said, absolutely perfectly with what we're up to and what we're about. And Metal House was five years ago that okay. I took it on. And then we took on Hackney Downs two years ago. Oh, no, sorry, three years ago now. And again, a vision of the space yes. before it. And again, and again, you know, came here and people were like, this is like a, a, a back alley, like a, it's dangerous, it's, it's a disused industrial estate, like type feeling, in the middle of nowhere, and you're going to put a cafe in this shed. You know, I mean, people just thought it was bonkers. But yeah, absolutely clear vision, idea of having these shops. You know, again, you didn't see the space before, but it was like, you know, just a derelict bit of industrial space. You know, you, l- looking back now, it's, it's sort of bizarre that it was like that because the russet is so popular and, and people go through to the park all the time. But, but when I came here, as the same way, I didn't see it as a derelict industrial site that was dangerous and horrid. I saw it as like this complete gem, like... Oh, incredible. I was so, again, beside myself with excitement. The, the motivation behind being a life coach was the same as the motivation behind what I'm doing now. You know, it's like, it's that I like to be in an inspiring world, you know, where people are kind of connected with something bigger than, you know, mundane, everyday life. And they're trying to, they're, they're kind of connected with their creativity. And, you know, when I was a life coach, I was doing that by working with people one-to-one to kind of bring out their visions and their creativity etc now I create a space in which they can do that for me it's sort of a kind of beautiful opportunity to give people their blank canvas and give people a platform on which they can flourish and make it as easy as possible because you know my experience of being a life coach and my experience of running small businesses in the past you know I've been running small businesses since I was like 14 is that there are a lot of obstacles to running a business and the more of those I can take away from people, the more I can encourage them to make stuff happen. So there's a lot of examples now in, in our buildings of people who just started with an idea. You know, they just said, I'd love to open a bike shop. And we just don't go, oh, that's a great idea. We go, okay, can we make this possible for you? Um, we don't give them a bike shop, but we say, okay, you know, if you, if you want to start, then we can, like you a low deposit we can like work up your rent over a few months and you know there's a space ready to go you don't have to sign a long lease or anything we make it very flexible and possible people and as a result we have a lot of businesses that as I said start as an idea and then grow into amazing successful things and that to me is 
obvious. I mean, it's like, of course you do that. Of course you take people's ideas and genius and help them make them flourish. But actually, every now and again, I look out in the world, you know, when we're talking to, like, the council or whatever it might be, and a lot of people are fixated on other people that are doing amazing things. It's like, we need a bike shop. Who runs great bike shops? Or maybe we can get, you know... um, Specialized, or maybe we can get these people that run, you know, Bike World to come and do a bike shop in our community. To me, that's not the beauty of it. You know, it's like to have the seeds of genius come from within the community that builds community. Kind of plaster it all in like some kind of patchwork quilt of ready made objects is more like Frankenstein. But interestingly, people don't come to us saying, You do a great job. Would you like some support? Would you like some money to fund small businesses? People don't do that. They're, they're, there are people pumping huge amount of money in, into investments and regeneration that involve bringing in central London businesses and chains and all that kind of thing. But there's a lot of talk about regeneration and like small business. Actually, you'd think people would be like, oh, this is great what you're doing. I have a pot of money to actually help grow these businesses. But, you know, we continue to just do it because we love it. <laughs> it's great. So you've opened a, a new space near Waterloo. Yes, Old Paradise Yard. So do you think you're kind of addicted? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, completely addicted. For me, in a way, the, n- nothing's ever quite finished. The way I approach my visions is I have this crazy grand vision and I just take it one step at a time. You know, I, I, do, I do what I can, when I can, and do it step by step and grow it. And, you know, I have incredibly exciting ideas in my head of, like, things that... You know, we can create and ways we can develop the communities and you know I'm, I'm wanting to to make more of that happen and also I feel hugely privileged to be surrounded by creativity and inspiring people all the time and in a way I sort of feel like I won't want to stop until the world is full of that you know, because as a child, I grew up in London in a communityless atmosphere where I didn't even know my neighbours, and it was rubbish. You know, and similarly, I've since grown up and gone to sort of villages where there was a real sense of community and people knowing each other, but actually not much ambition and kind of changing the world stuff happening. And and so I'd like to see more community and lots of inspiration everywhere you know no, I think every every generation I suppose wants to change the world in some way and you know our generation is doing that in a wonderful way for us because it's what's important to us you know this sense of community and fulfillment you know a sense of what do I want for myself and what do I want for my life and how do I want to make the world a better place and, um, and is there a plan or is it just like okay these opportunities come up and I find the ideas that go with the opportunities or have you got like a real long-term plan? The good question. I don't really feel like I've got a plan, but at some level I sort of do in that I know that I don't want to stop until the kind of atmosphere that I've grown to take for granted is global, you know, and everywhere. You know, I want to be able to go to a random town in England and feel those sparks flying as people manifesting their dreams and you know, coming up with possibilities and making random things happen you know, that, that, that they want to do. That's something that gives me a lot of pleasure, uh, not just from, from the sort of point of view of like 
in be inspiration creativity and life purpose and that kind of thing but also just because i've always loved running small businesses and making stuff happen you know i've always done that i suppose in terms of the plan i'd l like to open a lot more communities across this country and across the world but importantly not only open more but constantly evolve what we're doing you know what we do now is streets ahead of what we did five years ago and what we do in five years will be revolutionary compared with what we do now and do you yeah. see that kind of moving into living as well as absolutely working? absolutely yeah. i can't wait to revolutionize living space because it's so dry at the moment the way we this is just that whole thing like i, I don't feel like the way we build uh, living spaces at the moment in cities you know i don't think they're best designed to create a pleasant harmonious community atmosphere and you know, I think we could do a lot of exciting things there really make living in a city a joy you know and that so that and that's what drives me forward I'm like we can do it you know we can we can we can do that so let's let's do it why not <laughs> not indeed <laughs> um i think hackney down studios in particular uh you know i've been there and seen that space used in so many different ways like street feast started there years ago and you know that's uh, grown so much and i've seen some really interesting theater productions there as well i'm not sure if they've got heating it didn't feel very warm, warm. <laughs> I, I just I, I think it, this notion of creating a community around a workspace is really interesting mm -hmm. and you know, it there does seem to be this trend at the moment that people seem to want a lot more than just going to work, renting out a desk or renting a studio. They want to be able to learn. They want to be able to socialise. They want to be able to networking as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and there's, I mean, uh, there's a lot of initiative to kind of create uh, events and um, occasions where people can actually meet because I think the... The common assumption for a lot of these people was that you put a, a load of people in the same room working together and they'll just chat and start collaborating. No. But actually that doesn't <laughs> happen. So I think a lot of the people that run these spaces have had to organise things differently. And I, yeah, I, I definitely think uh, Leo's on a kind of mission to create a community around what he's doing and i can definitely see him in the future thinking as he said thinking about living and housing and how you can make that different and i think there's a there's quite a desire for different kind of living as well so i reckon that's next he's got big plans definitely so lastly a bit of music so this is from french dj producer and f communications label manager and much-loved legend, and he hasn't been here for a while, uh, Monsieur Laurent Garnier from Paris. And I'm going to play you a sort of lesser-known track, which was released in 2005 called We Claw. Um, I thought about playing sort of the more the ones that people know, and I just thought, no, why not discover something a little bit different? It's not so dancey. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have that in a second. So this is when we actually say goodbye, but before we leave you with Monsieur Laurent Garnier, <laughs> have I said this right? <laughs> the, there's just enough time that, to say that we've been Eastcast and you can find out more about our discoveries at eastcastshow.com or, you know, on the social media. Keep us on your timeline on Facebook and Twitter at Eastcastshow. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.